Good evening, everyone. My name is Owen Hopkins. I'm the Royal Academy's Architecture Programme Manager, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this event, which is a collaboration between the Royal Academy and Dokomomo UK. And it's a real delight to have two such distinguished speakers in Bernard Schumi and Jacques Gubler talking about Jean Schumi, one of the forgotten masters of the modern movement, and it promises to be a really fascinating evening. Uh, just before we begin, I'd just like to take a brief moment to thank the RA supporters this evening, the Drew Heinz Endowment for Architecture and Turkish Ceramics. And now it's my real pleasure to hand over to Judy Loach, architectural historian, professor in early modern and modern European cultural history at Cardiff University and chair of Dokomomo UK. Judy's going to be chairing this evening's discussion and will properly introduce our speakers. So please join me in welcoming Judy. Welcome and thank you very much for coming this evening. Our aim in this new series of Forgotten Masters is to bring to light some of those who ought not to have been forgotten because they have things to say to us or rather to show us um, which are relevant to design today. And we felt that it would be both enlightening and stimulating if, in each case, we could find a historian and a designer who could talk to us about the same forgotten master from their distinct perspectives, and then discuss with each other and with you. I remember how, a couple of decades ago, which rather tells my age, towards the end of a long conference dinner, it was in France, Jacques whispered somewhat conspiratorially, "'You only know one shoe in London.' You really ought to know the other one. So Jacques is like a conjurer who pulls rabbits out of a hat. He pulls things out of his jacket pockets. And on that occasion, it was a slim catalogue for a small exhibition he had just done on Jean Schumi. Well, even at first glance, two things were obvious. First, that the two Schumis were radically different. And second, that the other Schumi was indeed one we should know about. Forgotten, but not unknown, as he had been the first president of the UIA, he had been the founding head of Switzerland's French-speaking School of Architecture at Lausanne, but above all, an excellent architect in the most refined kind of classic modern movement. Yet you can imagine. I trust that tonight will ensure that he's no longer forgotten. Jack Gubler will speak first, and he is, as he is truly unknown to most of you here tonight, I can't simply say, as usual, he needs no introduction. Jacques is, in my view, the best living historian of Swiss modern architecture, and I think most would agree, at least for French-speaking and Italian-speaking Switzerland, but I've long thought his book on Swiss modernism, framed in terms of its nationalism and its internationalism, is by far the best on Swiss modernism at all, and I only wish that someone would produce and publish an English-language edition of it. He's particularly well-known internationally for his research into Corbusier, notably Corbusier's Swiss origins, but he has always retained a parallel interest in contemporary architecture and for decades wrote monthly postcards for Casabella. He has held chairs in architectural history at the architectural schools at Lausanne and Mendrizio, and those who have met him there or at La Chaux de Fonds, or Veve, or wherever else, will never forget his walking tours. The Corbusier Centenary Conference, for instance, where <coughs> after the final dinner, we set out at midnight in the pitch dark, in the pouring rain, umbrellas up for several hours. 
He lectures internationally such that he is well known in the States, but not yet well enough known here. High time to change that. I give you Jacques Wiebler. Thank you. So I was given to you by Judy. Thanks, Judy. Now, who's Jean Soumy? We know he's Bernard's father. The first Jean was born in Geneva in 1904. Now, the second, Bernard, was born in Lausanne in 1944. This is uh, architecture at full scale. He was a man on the building plate. This is a, a silo you, you find near Lausanne. And you have a small postage stamp detail of the scene. The, the picture was taken from the top of the crane. And there we see in precise heavy discussion with the contractor, the architect, who was fascinated by the use of the modern techniques and construction adapted to new expression of the material. For instance, we find here this frame in reinforced concrete. In front of a staircase of a building, it's an insurance building at Lausanne, we're going to watch now this wonderful drawing, the way he uses precast elements directly on the building side to bring them uh, into the frame of the building itself. So it's an extensive play on the generation used by the square within a square. Uh, it's a play which you might have watched already in Basel in the uh, Antoniuskirche von Karl Moser. Because uh, one thing is that Jean was so courageous enough that his architecture was always speaking to a master. Could be Moser, could be Salzburg, could be Perret, and above all could be for his, uh, you say, best enemy, Le Corbusier. They were not from the same generation. But he was referring to the work of the others are trying to do as good as he could. He was lucky enough to meet a wonderful contractor. This is the ceremony of the opening of the building place when everybody's coming. See, this is the architect and these are his patrons. He takes them on the building site of this insurance building. This is the document they put into a cylinder and the cylinder is poured into the reinforced concrete so that it will last forever. This very heavy panel is half a ton lifted by the crane. This, this contractor, Dantin, was a kind of local Arab, you might say, acting between Geneva and Lausanne. It was for his own publicity. Now, look at the risks taken by these people. No protection, no helmets, no gloves. It's really a tour de force. And what says in English, tour de force. It's also the name of a song by Dizzy Gillespie. Absence of protection and breathing of this kind of wonderful fresh air. <laughs> now, this is the use of uh, granite, alpine granite in the staircase. Now, since you, you did love 
this sequence. I will show it a second time. Even for uh, technical reasons and methodological reasons, it's very important to speak not only of the architect, but at least the engineers, the very wonderful engineer working here, creative, the contractors, and also the patrons. And Shumi's work is going to be a complete you say, move in seduction. You find the clients, and it'll be lucky enough to find uh, people working for such international societies called Nestle, Sando, you see, the, the, the whole of the pharma business. In this case, uh, it's an insurance company that plays a very local, central role in the development of uh, the building craft in the zone of Lausanne. Yes, a brief survey, design at full scale, themes in architecture, the rationalization of obsessions. You see what the importance of the postage stamp, and then the use of the variant, his interest for the metropolis, and his interest in so-called corporate architecture. He's using the full scale, which uh, is the scale used by the cabinet makers. Bernard's grandfather was a cabinet maker, and the son learned, all his tech at home, you might say, uh, what furniture was about. And it's obvious for you that if you producing a carpet, you must start with a scale one-to-one. -one. But then it goes up to the building of a cornice and reinforced concrete. We're studying scale one-to-one. -one. Now you find there are small sketches here. And this is the antithesis. It's the so-called postage stamp. Bon, le table poste. He learned that by Ruhlmann. Ruhlmann was a very famous Art Deco cabinet maker in, in France, had an international success at the moment of the exhibition of the Art Decorative. Shumi worked for Ruhlmann, and Ruhlmann was telling his students, you should concentrate your study at the scale of the postage stamp. The postage stamp, yes, not only for furniture, but also for architecture. So if you're studying competitions, you will find the intensity of the composition, your idea, when they're expressed at a very, very small scale, or small, well. And this was the beginning of architecture, understood as the contraposition of different possibilities, that's the systematic use of the variant in architecture within his own office. And this is the last competition he won in Geneva, is the International Wealth Organization. Um, the building was built posthumously. Uh, he has within the office the, the, the ability um, to treat the program in two or three different ways. I'm not going to extend on this. The question was, if this kind of technique, to use the variant, say, uh, is there one good solution? Perhaps. Maybe there is no absolute solution. There might be an existence, a kind of dialogue you must open within uh, the project. And this probably learned already when it was at the Beaux-Arts, at the Pontremolis Atelier, 
Vitalis is, is great architecture at full scale, uh, talking at length about the necessity of doing a whole series of so-called prototypes uh, at full scale. Uh, and uh, rarely do we have that uh, opportunity today. At, in a, it is a different culture. Uh, I found uh, the other day, as I was preparing for tonight, uh, a magazine that was extremely important in the, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, uh, as it literally uh, spread the influence of the modern movement worldwide. It, it was uh, highly read. And uh, with uh, 11 pages, it's very rare these days that you get 11 pages for a, for a project, on the uh, Nestle uh, headquarters building in Vevey. And I show you here simply a series of, of spreads of the, of, the, of, of the magazine. And what I find interesting about it is not only the fact that it shows a series of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of photographs, but it's quite documented in terms of plan and especially in terms of technical details. In other words, the technology, the mastery in technology that uh, these, uh, the, the, this work implied with the, almost the daily work with the contractors uh, was something that I enormously envy today. Uh, I have sometimes contra uh, contracts which forbid me to talk to the contractor. That happens in America when you work with a so-called construction manager and the client can talk to the construction manager, but I'm not allowed to, and especially not allowed to talk to the contractors themselves. So things have changed, uh, not always. There are moments when you can be lucky, and I was certainly with the Acropolis Museum, where indeed there was that old-time relationship between the workers on the site and the architect. But the striking thing is that I do not know too many magazines today that would show the, uh, the, the details of, uh, of, of a building next to its photography. More than that, I do not know many architects who would design the window details. They would go to the Schulkuck or whatever uh, window uh, um, uh, catalog and uh, have uh, whatever product they have uh, you know, on their catalog line. Interestingly enough, I tried once at La Villette to design my own windows. I was taken to court several years <laughs> later. So just, and the, the, uh, by the way, the, uh, the expert judge said, uh, Mr. Chumi, don't you think this is archaic to draw your details yourself? And indeed, they leaked. In any case, the, so uh, the, the work, the work uh, is uh, stunning because of that ability to combine an incredible uh, manner of uh, sensing what you could call, yes, a sense of proportion, but also a sense of, of, of very inventive technology uh, to do this particular stair, this double helix stair, uh, of, uh, at the Nestle building uh, is quite a tour de force. Again, they called it the Chambord. Uh, Chambord. Chambord is a French castle, of course, with a double helix stairs. There are not too many of these. To do it in steel is even more extraordinary. 
And again, you can only do that when you are able to have that trust of both your client and your uh, uh, construction workers. Some images, I just show them not for argument's sake, although one could discuss rendering techniques at the time. It's not at all with softwares. They're made of thin layers of cardboard that are simply uh, superimposed one on top of the other to give a sense of depth. Uh, in other words, inventing your mode of representation. That's very unusual today. Today we use our softwares and we all look the same. Uh, and no, at the time I think something was also happening where the mode of the representation was as important as the concept you would use. Of course, other uh, mode of construction, the purity of the, co the, 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 the construction system, uh, Jacques Gibler showed you that uh, concrete frame at the Orléans building. My father built only six buildings, actually, in his life uh, in a very short period between 1946 and 19, uh, actually 1950, well, 1962, yes. And uh, the, uh, the, this building, the Nestle building, has a few striking things. I want to show you simply about this issue of how people worked at the time. Uh, a little bit about the process. Uh, this is the plan, a couple plans, but it's not what I want to show you, although there are a couple beautiful things. If you look where is that stair, that's you know double helix square where it is located, is of course at the center gravity of the, the building, which has that Y shape. Uh, and, uh, but it doesn't uh, arrive right away. Amusingly enough, there is another building which is current, which is uh, in in under construction at the same time, which is the UNESCO building. And at the time, architects were not that different from one another; they were just as competitive and uh, friendly competition, you might say. But also a sort of uh, bravura. I say, I can do better than you can. And that was certainly uh, Jean Chumi's spirit when you see, for example, in the, the plan of the UNESCO, what do they have in the middle at the crossing of the Y? The elevator shaft. <laughs> so someone knew better. <laughs> so, but it didn't arrive right away. It is interesting and, uh, to see uh, how uh, you develop a concept. How do you develop the concept at in, 19, in the 1950s and how you do it now? So here are a few sketches. They try to literally compose a little bit. We have to remember that one of the major, major uh, uh, teaching institutions then was still the École des Beaux-Arts and uh, where indeed one looks for parti, a party, and then develops it. And so uh, the, I found a whole series of, and I have to admit, I don't know if Jacques knows them, because he does not, he shakes his head. I found them also in the last few, uh, the last few days. So uh, uh, the, the, the project develops, slowly takes, as you can see here on the right, uh, takes uh, this sort of H shape, bent H shape, and then eventually become that very little sketch. The top one on the, the left is, as Jacques said, it's no much bigger than a postage stamp. Uh, 
and then the uh, of course uh, the central stairs arise and a few other things and the project develops develops technically as well all those uh, sketches uh, I hate to call them sketches they're not about that they are just you know I call them today I call them notations uh, they are uh, literally they all dated between April 56 and, uh, and um, uh, June 56 and so arrive at indeed the design of a building Compare this to the way uh, uh, I would work uh, now. Uh, in this case, we're talking about 25 years later, uh, in 1982, uh, working for La Villette. The sketches at first, or the notations, are simply a comparison of different urban um, concepts uh, from the grid to the, the, the concentric, etc., to the point grid, and then applying every one of them to a uh, on a uh, on, on on the site itself, and amusingly enough, by using that that's, that technique, that device, you may recognize those of you who remember or know the project. You will recognize a, a project by Zaha Hadid by. Rem Kulhas and OMA and a few others, uh, simply because the number of permutation that you have as an architect is relatively finite. And then eventually arriving at this uh, point line surface axonometric, and here you always stun me, uh, Jacques, when you show that uh, night, uh, that uh, the, the model of this um, uh, subterranean Paris where there's a model of a superimposition of three grids. And uh, retroactively, I always felt my father copied me on this one. <laughs> and then the superimposition itself, you know this, and the building. But the buildings themselves are not about composition. They're really about permutation and transformation. And when a study is made, it is really testing, like in a matrix, what are the different uh, uh, possibilities, and then eventually selecting one, and here one gets closer to a form of composition, and then we all architects start to look at structure, how to do a, a cantilever and so on, and get into a project. But quite often, the, 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 the drawing has to do with almost a cartoon-like uh, diagram, Diagram became a word that was important only, I would say, uh, in the, the, in the mid-90s. But in many ways, it's also a way to think about materials, that there are two envelopes, or there's one, in this case, one envelope, but the outer envelope is metal, the inner envelope is wood. But that's a concept, and then it becomes the building, and so on, and at the inside, and the third material then is brought in its glass for all circulations. So it's another technique. Uh, I use the word technique in, in, uh, in a, as a sort of conceptual technique. In other words, how do you think? And how do you think? Uh, maybe sometimes, uh, quite often, in ways which uh, are not that dissimilar. After all, we deal with space, we deal with geometries. And inevitably, there are intersections. People have used the word typology. Typology is something which is not finite. You can keep inventing new typologies or simply reinventing them 
uh, like this double envelope for the project in uh, for the built museum uh, uh, in uh, Alesia in, in Burgundy, where the material itself is important. In other words, the wood is there to absorb the light uh, to make this building merge within these its circumstances. And uh, then the ramp, not quite as spectacular, of course, as the ramp you saw for Paris, uh, subterranean Paris from 1937. But the ramp is there in order to signify an idea of dynamic uh, presence in architecture. And so if you want to see one piece where there is a direct cause and if relationship, where the uh, sun lifts a detail from his dad, that's this one. Clearly, I had this in mind, that's earlier, when I did the claustra for the Acropolis Museum. And I wish I'll have a couple other opportunities to lift a couple other ideas from Jean Chumi. Thank you. First of all, I would like Jacques to respond if he has any comments on what you've said, and then I would like Bernard to respond, and then I'm opening it up to questions. Thank you. Yes, it's like opening Pandora's box, what Bernard has done. I think now we're right in the middle of a something in constant evolution, because there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of postage stamps and documents that have been kept. Why did he keep what other architects throw away? I'm talking about architects of his generation. I think it, it was an idea of efficiency because he could think about finding himself another time in a very same situation and try to go back in reference to his own work rather than you know, looking at the work of the colleagues. This is a very important way he became an architect. He was looking at what the colleagues were doing and trying to do better. The Bernard has made this proof tonight looking at Zerfus uh, the party at UNESCO is from Zerfus, and they visited themselves on the building place. There's something infinite. And this is the obsession of the themes you keep and you develop. It is completely out of any kind of chronology. I'm always wondering... Uh, well, let, let, let me make a... Uh, uh, I'm going to jump now to the 90s. In the 90s, we started to use uh, uh, digital technologies. We used computers. I believe uh, the school where, that I ran at the time, the, uh, at Columbia, we were among the first ones to use computers in the studios. We started something called the paperless studios. And uh, there... Uh, using softwares that came from fluid mechanics, think of, say, Greg Lynn, or think of a few others, uh, uh, you would think, send things in motion. 
and get a whole series of formal transformations which were endless. The, um, uh, the, the different uh, ways to get something constantly evolve raised an incredible, interestingly, interestingly uh, in, uh, issue called the stopping problem. Where do you stop the set of transformations? Of course, with the machine, it was very difficult because uh, your algorithms, you know, you could go forever. So the stopping problem for a very long time was the big question in the mid-90s. So uh, in the compositional mode that you could see uh, in the you know, in particular with all those incredible uh, little sketches which indeed uh, seem many, many of them have been kept, or my own way to work, which is in a substantially more, I would say, uh, drier and more analytical manner of doing things, which I'm not saying is better or it's, it's just something else, uh, is quite different from the stopping problem. In other words there is a moment when you are constantly, in a way, the critical judge of your own production. And that interests me at, at, uh, in, in terms of how we work. Uh, and again, I mean that back as I started, as we are all the product of our own time and our own generations, uh, when I said uh, that uh, those uh, little diagrams or drawings or sketches, whatever you want to call them, croquis in French, or, uh, are quite different from the way people will use, say, again, uh, a number of commercial uh, softwares that are used by all of us for rendering you know, purposes. So somehow I'm trying simply to, to raise the question of a adequation between the way one thinks and the architectural result that comes out of it. Jacques says you should ask the public. <laughs> and you are the public, not no, the colleagues, the friends, the citizenry. <laughs> I'm fascinated about this moment when you're, you're so dependent on, so formed, actually, by a Beaux-Arts training, your father was, and yet at the same time giving an appearance. I mean, it's, it's very interesting because you see that Beaux-Arts training of the variant and the party, and yet it's being used within a context which superficially seems to be producing a very... <coughs> modern movement building and the, the degree to which modern movement actually depends in its early stages upon a series of processes which have been inculcated which actually come out of, of the Beaux-Arts training I'm, 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 no, I'm going to res, not respond but I'm going to turn this into a question in relationship to, uh, I mean towards Jacques uh, uh, Jean Chumis is quite fascinated by what uh, Perret does. Perret is mm. a builder, is building, you know, a, a pioneer of, of concrete uh, construction, uh, and actually substantially more Perret-oriented than Le Corbusier-oriented at the time. But then, uh, uh, th this is an interest that has to do also with technology. 
So when in the mid-50s, John Truman goes to America and discovers Park Avenue, go to Pittsburgh and discover aluminum and alcohol, suddenly uh, the, the, the Beaux-Arts training is completely transcended by the idea of the logic of technology. And therefore, the work becomes quite extraordinarily pure through the, in a way, through the logic of, uh, you know, the architectural detail and so on. How do you see it in terms of what happens at, in this period of history? Because I would claim, for example, that the detailing of the Nestle uh, 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 Y-shaped building is substantially more sophisticated technically than the UNESCO in Paris. Oh, yes, when you enter the building, what you see is a fossilized crocodile. And this is the UNESCO. Now, take the, the fossil of a dove or a dovetail, and this is Chumi's building in Vevey. You have a dove and you have a crocodile. But it's also part of the expression of reinforced concrete. It was a challenge between Zerfus um, and Chumi. They, they were both at pont they, they had been working together. It's what really I didn't say was uh, Bernard's father had two offices, one in Paris, one in Lausanne. It was also teaching at Lausanne. It was an incredible life. It was a division of labor between two places. And, uh, well his tragic sudden death in the night train between Paris-Gare de Lyon, they found him dead at the, the Swiss border, was a, a result of this excess uh, in, in what? In work, in life, probably. Uh, he didn't have such a resistance as we nowadays maybe have. We're all astonished that we're living so long after having mistreated our dear bodies so long. Yes, Bernard has copied also uh, the efficiency of his father, having one, two offices, being also being a teacher. There is something, and this is a very, very important distinction between the father and the son, the father is nothing like a theoretician. He believes in what? In practice, in experiences, in precedent, one says in French. Where Bernard has developed this ability to theorize and in a way to put theory before practice. And this is a problem in Bernard. There is a first life in theorizing, a second life in building, and um, he has maybe lost a lot of time in theorizing before starting to build. But eventually, he <laughs> started in Paris, winning this competition. So we have a lot of yeah. young architects in theory. Yeah. Uh, you should try to win competitions. 
I'm, I'm not going to interrupt uh, Jacques. <laughs> uh, 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 I just want to dispel the idea that uh, theory precedes practice. Uh, I find that practice feeds theory just as much, and maybe that's what I like about <laughs> you know the work we all do as architects. Uh, it's you know um, a, a, a theory can precede a piece of work, and a piece of work can precede a theory that is made, that is derived from it, and that's what we all try to do. So it's not. <coughs> I think this is extremely important. And uh, ultimately also you can, even uh, in the case of, uh, but I haven't done that, and uh, I should, of, of looking at some of the issues which are to be found in the work, in the work of, of Jean Chouby, that could be, <laughs> so to speak, theorized. But I'm cautious with this because the word uh, is also mis misused. Anyway, question. I'm interested in, in two aspects of sort of att conscious attachment and detachment. Uh, if I can be so bold as a long-time teacher, most students who were the sons or daughters of well-known architects or architects, if the parent was not very good, they had a chance to be rather good. If the parent was rather famous, uh, they had a rough time. You are very unusual in the sense that you're highly talented and so is your father. And I find that intriguing because it breaks my theorem. But then I'm thinking, you said a lot about the business of, of detachment and I'm fascinated by certain parallels which have already been just pointed out that you, your father travelled between Paris and Lausanne and in fact I remember in the apartment, there were models, so that he was definitely doing something. He wasn't picking his nose and looking out the window. And, and, and yet he operated in, in Lausanne. Then I'm also fascinated by the degree to which he or you, well, certainly he was a Swiss architect, or was he really a French architect who happened to be Swiss? And to what extent, as he went to the Ecole de Bazaar, which clearly was infinitely more powerful than anything that Switzerland had to offer at that time, Whereas, whereas he did, in fact, start a Swiss architecture school. And I remember, sorry, if I can do another anecdote, you leading me into a room which you had not entered for some years in order that I could show slides in a very difficult hall to show slides. And you were sort of embarrassed. And I remember another occasion in, the, in Strasbourg where all the professors rushed up to you and said, ah, I was a friend of your father, and you kind of cringed. And that, that was really <laughs> the reason that, I mean, and you, you admit to it, the reason you came to England was not only Cedric, but the fact that it was, a, it was detached from that whole French language, French culture thing. Yet in later life, in, in, in working life, you are thought of, if not as an American architect, you are a French architect, not a Swiss architect. And so these, these conscious detachments uh, or attachments intrigue me, personally at an anecdotal level, but now it's come out this evening with, with greater and greater uh, information. Uh, perhaps there's something in it. Perhaps it's necessary for the successful, talented son or daughter of the, of the highly talented mother or father to deliberately turn, as you did quite, quite, intelligently and consciously and almost viciously by leaving 
the comfort of mainland Europe, mm -hmm. France, mm -hmm. Switzerland. As you now have perhaps the advantage of being a French architect who does not live in France, or an American architect who doesn't have the boredom of being an American architect. <laughs> in, in a way, in a way, Peter, uh, you, you, you said it all. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'll, I'll just, for, for the audience, of course, uh, you have to remember one little de anecdote then. Um, uh, I came, oh, what was I? Uh, 26, probably 27, uh, uh, with a, uh, a set of photographs, we didn't call it a portfolio, set in the members' room at the A. I think I even had met Peter before that. I think I met him in 67. Coming with, <laughs> with uh, you know, people when they came to lecture, they had carousels, and uh, so there was Peter and there was Dennis and like I think the two of them, but maybe there was a third one, uh, carrying each about six carousels, and they were going to play uh, something called the Archigram Opera. It was just before 1968, and it blew mm. everybody's mind in Paris. And I remember sort of uh, uh, actually going to dinner with them, and the conversation started, and eventually I ended up teaching at DA. Uh, and uh, <coughs> uh, amusingly enough, uh, when I was in the, you know, Peter invited me, before I started to teach, to come to a, a jury, to a review, as it was called, and spelled my name without the S. And I was T-C-H. And I was really interested. And I sort of liked it. <laughs> and you know why I liked it? Because my father, for part of his life, spelled it without the S. Why that? Because with the S, it was really a Germanic-sounding name. And a Germanic-sounding name in Paris in the 30s or 40s was not a good idea. <laughs> so this issue of, uh, of uh, escaping from one's roots or feeling somehow uncomfortable is simultaneously a strength and, of course, some sort of a wound. Um, uh, I think uh, Jean Chumi uh, left uh, Switzerland at age 17 to come and study at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts. Uh, in my particular case, of course, I want, didn't want to study in the School of Architecture in Lausanne that my own father had founded and went to Zurich, right? And from Zurich, went to Paris because I liked the place, so, but that was fine. It's, you know, it was uh, 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 another time. And uh, then from there, went to England, etc., etc., and then to America. But the issue is more, perhaps... Rather than saying that it's, it's a form of discomfort, I think it's a form of freedom. It, is, it allows you to get a certain distance vis-à-vis -vis the dictionary of the received ideas that your own set of circumstances would have had. And I, indeed, find it extremely personally liberating to be considered as a you know, an architect from one side of the ocean on the other side of the ocean and vice versa, right? It's, it's simply, it allows you 
room, it gives you room to think. Uh, to take it further, I would take it as one time we had the opportunity to discuss to the realm of psychoanalysis, and I'm not going to enter this one. <laughs> I think you mentioned earlier that at the beginning of your career, Bernard, um, the driving concept of your design was space rather than history, which was too heavily loaded. And I wonder whether you could perhaps elaborate on that and but also on the relationship that your father had with history at that point? Uh, I'll, try to, to, I'll, I'll try to do it. Uh, uh, the, the part of your question about Jean Chumi, uh, uh, because I'm, I'm trying to, to, to invent, some, not to, to invent, to invent in the sense of discover. Um, as as Jean-Luc Gubler mentioned, uh, his own father, my grandfather, was a, a furniture maker. And uh, when uh, not, not being a French architect, not having work, found it easier to find work, to get work, for people like Brandt or Ruhlmann, who were very famous Art Deco, uh, uh, you know, sort of interior uh, designers and, and uh, furniture designers. Now, <coughs> the, the art of building a piece of furniture, which is something that I've never tried to do, by the way, uh, is such a thing which is so incredibly precise, where every millimeter counts, and every sense of uh, the relationship between the eye, the body, and the hand uh, is, is, becomes a, a really a, a factor that shapes the way you think, right? Uh, it's, so I think that was the starting point of something which, and then that's why I like you know, the Jacques' title at full scale. You, when you design a chair, eventually that's at full scale. At, in, in a building, it's much more unusual. So in this respect, in my particular case, it was something somehow different. Uh, I had to get away from this extraordinary 4,000 years of history of architecture. I'm I was reasonably knowledgeable, but I had to get away from it. And, and the word space was a fantastic word because it was shared by artists, by writers, by filmmakers, and so on. And then out of that, it gave some well spaces about movement and movement is about etc etc and then mm -hmm. uh, eventually today uh, i find myself very comfortable at teaching history right history of architecture simply because probably having that sufficient distance but uh, i don't know if i've answered your question right it's just say, saying how how you uh, you choose I could put it almost in a, in a, in a um, uh, how can I say, in a Peter Cook uh, manner. You better choose your friends and choose your enemies. And uh, sometimes choosing your enemies is more important than choosing your friends. Back in your childhood, was there a building or a space which went on to influence your later work? I'm interested to hear if it was one of your father's buildings or if it wasn't and if it was in France or if it was in Switzerland? Let, let me try to answer uh, in, in a different way, because I'm not sure if I know how to answer. 
uh, architects, as we all know, we work a lot, and uh, sometimes the only moment when we have time to go and visit our building site, we go there on Saturday afternoon. And if you have a four-year-old kid, you take him along, because what do you do with a four-year-old kid? So I spent a fair, fair amount of time on building sites, right? Uh, uh, but, you know, for me it was a playground or anything like that, and not, I was not terribly, you know, um, how can I say, judgment, judgmental about it. And uh, so I would say that uh, it's only when I started to go into architecture <coughs> school then you have certain fascinations, and those fascinations, you know, are not terribly different from the one of my own generation, you know, from Corb to Mies and a few other heroes, and then the heroes became more the people that nobody really liked, you know, like, uh, how can I say, um, uh, oh, doesn't matter, right? <laughs> I'll risk this one. Um, there's a lot of reference being made to postage stamps, these small thumbnail sketches. I'm afraid to say that there can be a lot of misinterpretation uh, in hindsight by others overlooking these sketches to, to decide what it was that it meant and how it influenced. In reality, we all have done thumbnail sketches at a point in time which is a matter related between the creator and a, a kind of help to m decide how to move on forward. It, it, it's a, it's a, a mental process. Now, you can choose something after the event when you're looking back at the his historical documents and say, oh, well, of course, this is what he was, where he was going to, and this is how it started. Do you, would you agree or disagree with that fact that there's a danger of misinterpretation? There is a danger of misinterpretation. I tried it, the postage stamp idea was, uh, you must say, result of the teaching by Jacqueline Holman, uh, and Schumacher was working for him. And Holman said to, uh, we have the text, gave lectures that the intensity of the postage stamp is such that you, you should start your reflection about the program, be it a chair, be it a stool, be it a music instrument, be it a building, at such a level that uh, the concentration uh, is producing something which uh, will have an intensity such that you will, as you said, proceed in the study and then you get to the idea of the series. You might go to the idea of the variant, because a, a, a variant <coughs> is a way of, of well, I, I wouldn't say permutation, but a variant is another way uh, of finding an, another solution. And we're leaving aside the idea of the absolute, leaving aside the idea that when you have a program in architecture, there is only one good solution. This probably is part of the competition, competi competition in architecture when you organize a competition for you know, the League of Nations uh, Palace in, in Geneva. 
So there are going to be hundreds of competitors, and there's going to be a jury. And, and one should assume that the first prize is the best solution, and that the best solution is the one and only best possible solution. This kind of competition is not involved in the idea of the variant, and in the idea that when you look at such a small scale, you, you would find potentialities uh, in one solution or in the other. And there is a, a quote by Jean Choumet, is la moins mauvaise des solutions, which is a terrible phrase in a way. I'll, I'll, I'll do the translation. Uh, it's, uh, it, there is no best solution, they are only the least bad. <laughs> voilà, voilà. This you would say to students working in this office, the least bad. Uh, just to, to, to pick up on, on your question, you could also argue that uh, those diagrams you do to your, for yourself, they, they are really about an extension of the way you're thinking. And uh, indeed, it's, it's almost a private sort of language you have. Uh, I always think that these type of small drawings are a shortcut that is absolutely necessary because, you know, you, 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 you need that short, shortcut between something which is entirely mental and something which will eventually be material. So, so they're quite important, uh, but uh, to start to give them interpretations, uh, it all depends on uh, who the architect is. There are certain architects who do them highly self-consciously, who do them for publication purposes and all that, and I'm sort of fairly mistrustful of that, and there are the, uh, others who are much more immediate and, and intuitive uh, about it, and that's, that's how it should be, really. In any case, uh, to, to give you another one of those, uh, the least, um, not the best, but the least bad, is the, this expression of um, the perfect is the enemy of the good. I have, a, I have a question regarding your um, relation with uh, cinema and architecture. Um, when looking at the Manhattan Chrome script and how you use the uh, notions in cinema and uh, sort of develop it into your architecture, I was uh, and looking also at the um, Metropolis, uh, the Acropole uh, Museum, uh, how you used uh, the fresque and, and how you mentioned it re related to Eisen. Uh, uh, Eisen. Einstein. Yeah, Einstein uh, uh, films. Um, the drawing of your uh, of your dad, John Shumi, the one with the big um, ramp, reminds me a bit of Friedland's uh, Metropolis, and uh, so I think it's quite interesting to see maybe <laughs> in that sense uh, um, how cinema affected. Uh, oh, oh I, I have to say this this drawing has haunted me for, for a long, long time. But after all, you know, remember Fritz Lang was trained as an architect uh, and uh, so that's not, you know, that's not uh, sort of an accident. But the fact of a, a, a film, you know, in a way I could say that uh, I, I personally knew more about film and knew more about literature than I knew about architecture when I really started to, when I got out of school, let's put it this way. Um, are you uh, still inspired by uh, the contemporary directors, or are you using, uh, you're looking at... Well, it's more difficult, story? because I, mean, I, I think the, 
the, the uh, uh, I would call the phenomena hyperrealism uh, has been uh, quite often something that has gone against uh, the idea of film as a sort of uh, place of invention. It still exists, of course, there are some films, but the, uh, the well, it's a long, it's too long to have a conversation today about the film industry and, 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 and what it has become. You know, a few days ago I was watching on Sunday night the Oscars and I hope that's not our terms of reference anyway. As an architect today, what was the most important thing that you looked through your father's uh, work for you? I mean, I don't know how as a person or or as involved in the on the makings of the architecture he did uh, well let, I, I, let me tell you about uh, what uh, how long ago six or nine months ago uh, Judy uh, you know uh, came to my office and suggested <coughs> that uh, you know we would do an ev uh, an evening like like tonight right and I, I was sort of hesitant at first, and I said I've never, you know, started to address the thing, but I, I, I <laughs> so to address my father's work. And so I said, well, I better do it, and I decided that I would give myself a full week and go and visit one building after the other. Of course, I have to confess that I haven't done that. <laughs> I, do, I do want to do that, right? And uh, the reason is it's to see, because I, I've seen a few buildings over, again over the years, including the last 10 years. And uh, I've also discovered all the things that I know that I'll never be able to do. And it has, there are two reasons. One which is the ability of the, this particular architect, and another because the times have changed. And the level of total control uh, that you, you know, uh, Jacques mentioned, uh, that when your, um, your client, you know your client, it's amazing, most of the time, it's rare that I know my clients. It's a board, right? Or it's uh, the state, uh, you know. The, the <coughs> so uh, to have, an, or you know the construction worker who is going to hang that huge piece of free cast, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, things have changed, and, but it doesn't mean that I'm not completely fascinated and uh, I really can be quite obsessed with it, yeah. The three last and most important buildings by Jean Chumy have already been restored by other architects and with a lot of care and completely transformed through this process of not renovation, I say restoration. And Obviously, there is a kind of fragility in such structures. And if we go and visit these buildings, what we see is the intervention of another office, of another very clever architect, reflecting his own craft at the light of Jean Chumis. That's it. 
So uh, it's an enlightened, enlightenment is a word in English. And I think uh, Jean Chumet was a man of the enlightenment. Uh, and you were right as a president of the Docomomo Great Britain to pick up hmm, no? Jean Chumet's work as an example for Docomomo to proceed on. Well, thank you. But, well, I think it is, it is an architect whose work is very well worth looking at and which is of relevance today for us to look at, both from the overall design and from the craftsmanship of construction. At that point, can I ask Tony Fretton, our most recently appointed trustee, to, um, <laughs> to give a vote of thanks to the... I have uh, three tasks. One is to uh, thank uh, Bernard and Jacques for a typically conjectural and oblique account of the work of an architect. And Bernard, who gave two tumors instead of one, which is <laughs> welcome. Um, to thank the um, Royal Academy for hosting this event. To say on behalf of Dokumoma, there's a hope that this would be the start of a longer collaboration. But there's a third task which I'm prevented from fulfilling, which is to exhort you to join Dokumoma. It's a small organisation, and it gets bigger if you join it. So thank you. <laughs>